My subject this morning, which follows from that which was presented last evening, and perhaps those who were not here last evening may want to hear that message on the tapes, is to again look at the prophecy of Revelation 13. And to look at the concept of the deception of the elect in relationship to Revelation 13. So let us turn to Revelation 13, and I want to read the eighth verse. We are living in the age of ecumenism. The greatest deception of the devil today is the ecumenical concept. For it has taken men who knew the truth of God away from their duty to call men and women out of Babylon. And that ecumenical thrust, the concept that it is time for Christians to unite, is almost going to succeed. Almost. But my dear brothers and sisters, there is a very small remnant. And they, and they alone, will stand between the utter success of the ecumenical movement and its failure. Verse 8 of Revelation 13. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him. Now that is, of course, the first beast of Revelation 13, the papacy. But as we saw last evening, the papacy receives its authority from the dragon. So in reality, this is Satan worship. It is not the worship of God. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him. If the text concluded at that point, what a dismal prophecy it would be. Each one of us would be in a state of despair. But praise God, it does not conclude with those words. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the earth, or of the world. Brothers and sisters, is our name written in the book of life? The answer is yes. If we have accepted Christ, our name is there. But I have a more important question. In the day in which you and I stand before the judge of the universe, will our name be retained in the book of life? We are told by the servant of the Lord that everyone who makes a profession of following Christ has his or name, her name recorded in the book of life. So we can say... If all of us have made a profession of Christ, 
that our names are there. But the day is nigh at hand when there is to be a moment when each one of us stands before that judgment bar of God. Those of you who were blessed to be here for the morning worship heard a fine presentation on what it means to stand before the judgment bar of God and uh, have Christ as our advocate. God used that message this morning. No careless Seventh-day Adventist can stand with any confidence before that bar. No half-hearted Seventh-day Adventist. No, no Seventh-day Adventist who believes the devil's falsehood that we will be sinning till Jesus comes. But tragically, there are hundreds and hundreds of thousands of Seventh-day Adventists who have today accepted the devil's lie that they can sin and then stand and be exonerated, unconfessed, unforsaken, when they stand before the judgment bar of God. Not one sin. Unconfessed and unforsaken will be forgiven at that moment. It is a solemn time. And sister, I thank God for that message this morning. For in words that could not be misunderstood, our sister brought to us both the biblical and the spirit of prophecy certainties of that fact. Aren't you grateful that God has promised that he is able to keep us from falling? Can I see the hands of those who feel that they have been benefited by any of the sins that they have committed? Praise the Lord, I see no hands. Let me see the hands of those who feel that they have been benefited when God has forgiven and taken away their sins. Oh, what a difference. Sin has never done anything for any of us. And God, in his love for us, he says, I'm prepared to rescue you from sin. A lot of Christians believe the pagan idea that as long as you've got a bit more good in your life than you have evil, uh, that uh, you will be saved. Or as long as you say, I believe in Jesus, and you have an intellectual belief. Such will be part of almost all the world which will worship the beast. Whether they proclaim themselves to be Roman Catholics or Protestants or even Seventh-day Adventists, those who still have a hankering for sin, who have not humbly confessed the evilness of their lives, for we have all been evil, we have all had evil lives contrary to our God. We'll be lost. And so God calls us in this warning message to beware for almost 
save for that very small remnant as it's termed in Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 9, will worship the beast. There will be large churches of Seventh-day Adventists where the vast majority, unaware of it now, will find themselves worshipping the beast and his image, which means, as I said earlier, worship of Satan. And my dear brothers and sisters, the whole purpose of these meetings, as they have developed over the years, is to urge our people in love and in tenderness to be ready for Jesus when he comes. What a joy it will be in heaven if the whole group of us here in Gaisley today, this little tiny minuscule village in England, was to be found in the kingdom of heaven when God makes up his jewels. I can't think of anything more wonderful than that. I can't bring you any greater hope. Can you imagine meeting our Savior face to face? I can't imagine the gratitude that I will have if God in his tenderness brings me to his kingdom. We probably do not possess in our fallen natures anything like the capacity for gratitude that would even slightly approach the gratitude that our Savior and our far Heavenly Father and the Holy Spirit deserve in our salvation. But the Bible is awfully plain that many Seventh-day Adventists are going to be deceived. Every pastor, I think, who is ordained to the gospel ministry, and this was certainly so of my own ministry, takes the vow the biblical vow of 2 Timothy chapter 4. You'll remember that. I charge thee therefore before God. And so the charge comes. I remember the moment that that charge was read to me. It was a very significant moment in my life. It was no man-made charge. For it came from God's word. But then in that charge, in verse 3, we read, and I want us to listen. For the time will come. I'm reading 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 3. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. If, Paul, if Paul was writing to a minister today, I believe he would write something differently. He'd change one of those words. He would say, for the time has come. My dear brothers and sisters, this is prophecy fulfilled before our eyes. When they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts, shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. Now notice verse 4. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth. 
These are Seventh-day Adventists. God has given the truth in its fullness to Seventh-day Adventists. And here we are told that in the last days, these people who have known the truth, they have been certain of the truth, they have been baptized, they may be preached the truth, they may be taught the Sabbath school class, may be ordained elders or deacons or, or pastors, maybe church leaders, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. What deception! Still believing they're marching to Zion when they're marching to damnation. Tragic. Tragic, my dear brothers and sisters. We read... Also in the first epistle of Timothy, chapter 4 again, but this time the first epistle, the first verse. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times, are we in the latter times? It's, it's a rhetorical question, isn't it, brothers and sisters? We would have the densest of blindness if we did not recognize that we are in the latter times, in the last days. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith. What is the faith? Is it apostate Protestantism? Is it Catholicism? Of course not. This is speaking of God's people. Some shall depart from the faith. The faith. And what are they going to do? Giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Can you imagine how our God weeps when such a condition occurs amongst those who have held the faith? And then they follow the doctrines of devils, seducing spirits. Some time ago, <clears throat> my brother and I wrote a book entitled Spiritism in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Some of you may have read that book. It is fearful how the devil has brought spiritualistic concepts into those who claim and profess to have the faith. Deceptions. Sister White tells us in the book, volume 5 of the Testimonies, page 210, deceptions of every kind are in the church. Now you know when Sister White wrote Testimonies to the church, she was not writing to other churches. And when she mentions the churches, the church, she is referring to the Seventh-day Adventist church. Deceptions of almost every kind are in the church. And yet one can speak to many Seventh-day Adventists who are totally oblivious. Oh, 
everyone agrees there's a little problem here and a little problem there. My dear brothers and sisters, it's time for Seventh-day Adventists to face up to reality. Either the spirit of prophecy told the truth or she's a deceiver. And my dear brothers and sisters, that is the truth of God. Deceptions of almost every kind are in the church. When God looked down to his last day church through the prophet Isaiah, what did he write in the first chapter? Remember, and I'm quoting from third volume of Selected Messages, page 338. Selected Messages, volume 3, page 338. Sister White tells us that the ancient prophets spoke less for their own time than for ours. Therefore, their prophesying is in force for us. Yes, this applied to Israel of old. No question that this passage applied to them. But it's even more vital and more relevant to us today. And how did he describe this church? Verse 4 of chapter 1. Ah, sinful nation. A people laden with iniquity. A seed of evildoers. Children that are corrupters. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked the Holy One of Israel unto anger. They have gone away backward. Why should ye be stricken any more? And do you hear what the Lord says? Ye shall or will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot, even unto the head, there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores they have not been closed, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment. That's God's picture of his church. And yet it is the one object of his supreme regard. Some people, of course, remember that and forget the other part of the statement. Weak and defective in need. Of reform. And some only remember the weak and defective part. And it's very easy to document the fulfillment of that prophecy. And then in verse 9, except the Lord of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant, we should have been as Sodom and we should have been like unto Gomorrah very small remnant. What happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? Wiped off the face of the earth. They're gone from the face of the earth. There's only one reason that the Seventh-day Adventist church continues to be the apple of God's eye. It's because of the very small remnant. Brothers and sisters, I pray that as I look into the eyes of of every dedicated Seventh-day Adventist here today. That God is speaking to your hearts. 
and that each one recognises his or her responsibility to be part of that very small remnant. For that very small remnant alone is the object upon which Christ can place the completion of his work on earth. That is the reason why we have to have and are experiencing the mighty shaking in God's church. That is why there are so many winds of doctrine in our midst. It is because the church is being shaken. And we are told that everything that can be shaken will be shaken. That includes every conference, every union, every division, and the general conference. Everything. But let us never forget that that includes self-supporting work also. It includes every aspect of God's church. And today it is being shaken by winds of doctrine. False doctrine, the spirit of prophecy tells us, will come into our midst. And it has. And then there's going to be a rejection of the straight testimony. And for most Seventh-day Adventists today, there is a rejection. Church pulpits around the world are closed to the preaching of the message that would save our people. Every effort is made to close the doors to those who would proclaim the truth. And they're vigorously taken. Warnings are given from continent to continent. Don't open your churches. <coughs> Tragic. Tragic, my brothers and sisters. Within God's church. A boycott on the truth. No wonder these warnings about what will happen in the last days. Boycotts on the truth. Yes, a church member is perfectly a liberty in many countries, including my own, to go and sit through a Roman Catholic Mass. There will be no church discipline. But go to a meeting where the truths of God are being proclaimed these truths that we read about in this hymn, the old paths, and people endanger their existence in the church. There are people here whom I know who have stood for their whole lifetime proclaiming the truth of God. They have been faithful, not only members, but leaders of the churches in the sense of being elders and deacons. They have been soul winners. They have loved the truth and they have proclaimed it. But because the truth has become unpalatable, they have been severed from the very church which should be upholding their hands, their arms, just as Aaron and her held up the prophet's hand. They have stood. And yet, they can no longer attend even those churches. Every law of decency 
has been broken in order to assure that they are no longer welcome in the church. Everything that was predicted by our Lord has been fulfilled. Let us turn to Luke 21. Luke 21. And verse 8. These are the words of our Lord and Saviour. And he said, Take heed that ye be not deceived. Anyone who votes for the disfellowshipment of a godly individual is in a state of terrible deception. Shameful deception. Oh, but we have to vote. We have to be loyal to our, our pastor. And he says that these people are unfit. So whatever we think, we've known them to be godly people. We've trusted them. But the pastor says, out, up go the hands. Shame, my dear brothers and sisters. Shame, shame, shame. They are deceived. And he said, take heed that ye be not deceived, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ. Many will come in the name, saying, they are of Christ. That's another concept we must remember. And the time draweth near. Go ye not therefore after them. You know... God foresaw what would occur in the last days. And we know this passage so well. John chapter 16 and verse 2. And they shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God's service. Can you imagine a greater deception as that? Casting righteous people out of the church, taking them to death, and then saying, we're doing the will of God. No wonder God said, be not deceived. Be not deceived. You'll remember that Christ spoke in that way. Because all that follow this deception will fulfill the first part of Revelation 13 verse 8. All that dwell upon the earth shall worship him. Those who do these works are the servants of Satan, not the servants of God. The Bible makes it plain. And my heart just goes out, my dear brothers and sisters, to our people. It's time for an awakening like we have ever, never known. Some of you will remember in the year 1973... In the month of October, the annual council was held in the United States. The president, the general conference president of that time was Pastor Robert Pearson. Pastor Pearson, whom I knew well and whom my brother knew much better, was a man of God, as far as humans can judge, a godly leader. And Pastor Pearson 
perceived even back there more than a quarter of a century ago. The depravity of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And he put out a statement and made a plea. He said, both ministers and laity are in insubordination. Now that's a strong English word. Very strong. To the plain will of God. We don't use the word insubordination very lightly in the English language. It's stronger than disobeying. It means even a stronger word than they're disobedient. They're in insubordination. But that was the word he used. And he called for repentance and for reformation. But nothing happened. In 1985, my brother and I were having dinner with Pastor Pearson. He was now retired up in North Carolina. And we said to him, Pastor Pearson, what happened to that godly call for repentance and reformation that you had made 12 years earlier? Remember, this is now 1985. He just looked so sad. He said, you know, that was the greatest disappointment of my ministerial life. He said, the reason that there was no major response to that call was that neither the pastors of the Seventh-day Adventist Church nor the lay people of the Seventh-day Adventist Church wanted reformation nor repentance which must precede it. 26 years have almost passed since that time. And I believe speaking generally, oh yes, there are those who, who sincerely repent. But we're talking in general terms. The situation is even worse today. In 1989, my brother and I visited the General Conference office, as we frequently do, and we spent two hours with Pastor Enoch Oliveira. Some of you may have met him. I only wish you all knew that godly vice president of the General Conference. He was from Brazil. He had been a General Conference vice president at that time for nine years. I can still see the tears running down his cheek as he discussed the tragedy of God's church. He said to us, you know, a few weeks ago, I was so burdened about all the abuses of truth, the abuses of God's church, of our colleges. He said, there's not one North American college that I could recommend as a safe place to send our young people. He was speaking of Seventh-day Adventist colleges. And I believe he was correct. And then he said, I call the president of the North American division and the president of the Columbia Union Conference to my office. And I pled with these two men, brethren, you're Americans. It is your duty 
to call our people in this great North American continent to repentance and reformation. He told us that these two men turned to him and in the rudest possible terms said, you mind your own business. You're a foreigner. We Americans are well able to take care of the church in North America. And that's when the tears, he said, I have never been spoken to in my whole life. He said, there's not going to be a general call. If this is the attitude of men who absolutely leave, he said, I cannot wait for one more year when I retire and I can go back to my little home in Brazil and not see all the abominations that are being done in the church. That's what he said. Oh, that we could have men like Enoch, Pastor Enoch Oliveira as General Conference presidents. The problem is that our church everywhere is sadly deceived in a general sense. If we go to Christ's message in Matthew 24, the very first warning he gave to God's people when he was asked concerning the signs of the coming. Verse 4, And Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you. Many people who believe they're standing for truth are being deceived today. Brother Anderson and I were speaking this morning. And uh, he stated something that is just so true. There are those who go to church week in and week out and they feel that somehow they're blessed because no direct error is spoken in the church. Well, at least our pastor uh, doesn't speak error. You know, we never spoke that way when I was a boy. We expected the pastor always to preach the truth. But you come to Australia and people are saying the same thing to me. In Australia, as Brother Anderson mentioned, well, at least in our church, we're better off than most other churches. At least he doesn't preach any error. But as Brother Anderson said, you can kill someone with poison by giving them error. And you can kill them by starving them, by keeping truth or spiritual food from them. I just had a young woman say exactly those words to me concerning the church she had decided to go back and attend. Well, at last we've got a minister. And many of you would know that minister because he comes from this nation. He's a very good penis. That may give you a hint. And he, she said, you know at least we don't hear any error from him. I said, wonderful. But is he preaching present truth? Oh, uh, well, no. Uh, you know, he, he urges us to be good people, to help the sick, help the poor. Well, of course, noble things. But what does Sister White tell us we need today? Present truth. Present truth. And what I, is that present truth? 
The 2,300 days, the sanctuary message, that is the whole plan of salvation. And the three angels' messages, they constitute present truth for this day. And those messages will bring us humbly before our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, there is a deception in our church which is more deceptive than plain error. It is a deception of withholding truth from God's people. Not going out and saying, as most Australian pastors preach and encourage their uh, congregations to believe, you can sin till Jesus comes. No one will ever have overcome sin until the second coming of Christ. My brothers, my sisters, that is the devil's word. That is what the devil says. Do you know what Sister White had to say? She spoke of this. We find it in volume 5 of manuscript release 112. The world's redeemer passed over the ground where Adam fell because of his disobeying the express law of Jehovah. And the only begotten Son of God came to our world as a man to reveal to the world that men could keep the law of God. Men, you and me, could keep the law of God. If that was not his purpose, why did he spend 33, 4 years on this earth? If it was the one purpose of him coming to earth was to die for our sins and to be resurrected, he could have come on the Thursday before his crucifixion, been arrested, tried, crucified, raised on the Sunday. He could have spent about three days on this earth and he could have accomplished the sacrificial aspect of the atonement. And make no mistake, I'm not underestimating that. What a wonderful sacrifice that was. But it didn't require 33 or 4 years on earth. Not at all. Or if it was so that he could train up his apostles, he could have spent about three and a half years on earth and instructed the apostles in their college course, which was the best college course that's ever been given in the whole history of this world. But he came to show that from childhood through teenage years, through early adulthood into mature adult status, Man could keep the law of God. But listen, the passage goes on to tell us what Satan's counterclaim was. Satan, the fallen angel, had declared that no man could keep the law of God. Now that is the theme of the vast majority of Australian and New Zealand Seventh-day Adventists ordained pastors today. That which the devil teaches. That is what most of our colleges are teaching today whether they be in Western Europe, whether they be in the Far East, whether they be in the United States or in Australia, they are teaching their ministerial students that obedience to the law of God is not a possibility. They have been deceived by the errors of apostate Protestantism. They have gone to those colleges. They have studied for their PhD. And the professors come back and they teach the devil's deceptions to the students. Now, brothers and sisters, lest you think that I am being exaggerating, you travel the world as we do. 
to every continent. It's not just in one continent. You go to Cologne and see what they're teaching to God's young people in Cologne. You go to Andrews University. Yes, there are some faithful professors in these places. But you speak to the faithful. They're fighting a battle with their backs to the wall. You go to Walla Walla College. You go to La Sierra. Do you realize so tragic has La Sierra Adventist University become in California that 300 students signed a petition pleading that the truth of God be restored, that they could hear the truth of God in their college. 300 students, virtually one-third of the student population. I wish it was 100%. And they, had, they were given short shrift by the university administration. Very short shrift. So they sent their petition to every alumnus saying, please help us. We are getting humanism. We're not getting anything about Christ. And these are the core subjects that no matter what your major is, you are compelled to take. All this error. Deceptions of almost every kind. But you know, it's very easy, my dear brothers and sisters, to look out and see these things happening and say, well, I'm not as other men, you know. I, yes, oh, they're terrible. And a lot of people who come to meetings like this are as verily deceived. Or not in the same way, perhaps. About ten years ago, my brother and I wrote a book entitled Keepers of the Faith. We've written over 30 books together now. In which we showed all the devilish errors that were being taught in our denominational colleges. Some of you may have read the book, Keepers of the Faith. Some have, I hear. But we have just finished a manuscript in called Winds of Doctrine. And that book is looking into the winds that are blowing amongst those who believe in the truth of God in its old purity. Our hearts are broken, my dear brothers and sisters. Have we forgotten? Have we forgotten the steady course that God has given us? Have we forgotten the words of this hymn? Sister White tells us, and the scripture tells us, that winds of doctrine would be blowing in the church. I go around the world today, my dear brothers and sisters, and I realize that the devil is attacking the very elect. And some who believe they're part of the very elect are being seduced. Wonderful people. They have stood disfellowshipment. They have stood scorn. They have stood being put out of church office and all the many ecclesiastical penalties that come to those who are brave enough to stand. Some of them may have been ministers who have been cast out of the ministry. 
They may have been deprived after many years of service of their uh, sustentation and many other different penalties, but they have nobly stood, very nobly stood. And the devil is at his wit's end. How? How can I get to these people? If I preach sin and live, they will never accept it. They know the truth of God. If I preach against the sanctuary message, their ears will be immediately attuned to the error and they will not flinch from that mighty truth. If I decry the work of the spirit of prophecy, they will reject what I have done. What can I do? Because the devil is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He's not content to have the Laodicean condition prevail in 90% of God's people or more. He wants it in 100%, for then they are all his. And make no mistake, he's a much smarter being than any one of us here. I haven't done IQ tests here, but I don't have to. He's far smarter than any one of us here. And he is ever seeking, not to destroy the whirlings in the church. He's already got them. He doesn't have to be very careful. He just gives them the world. He gets them to bring into the church the big sporting events on the television and come and watch it in the church. In Australia, in some churches, yes. He gets them to pay competitive sports. He gets them to sing rock music. He gets them to drama, to mime, to clowns. Anything which will blaspheme the God of heaven and it is served up as if it is a pure and holy service. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness, my dear brothers and sisters. But what can he do about the very elect? People like yourselves who are earnest about your faith. <coughs> Make no mistake, he hasn't said, well, here is Joe Smith. He goes along to Gaisley meetings. I give up on him. There's no hope. No. The devil never does that. And we read about it, of course, in Christ's statement in verse 24 of chapter 24 of Matthew, for there shall arise false Christs and false prophets and shall show great signs and wonders insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. In around the world, possibly in this country too, we are now seeing that there are Numerous people who attend our meetings who now come close to grieving the Holy Spirit by claiming that the Holy Spirit is not a person. They find vague statements in the spirit of prophecy that have to be interpreted to their thinking and in the Bible and they ignore the plain, irrefutable facts of the Bible and the spirit of prophecy. To the point 
that eventually they despise the spirit of prophecy. The Holy Spirit is not a person, not a being. What does Romans 8 have to say? Why not we turn to it? Romans 8, verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmity. I praise God that it's not some vague force that's helping my infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us. He's an interceder. Between us and who? The Father. Of course. He makes intercession for us. You can't have an intercessor or a mediator between one of the disputants. We, not God of course, but we are in dispute with God. And he intercedes for us. People say the Holy Spirit is just the power of God. Well, then he couldn't be our intercessor. An intercessor has to be a third person between the two disputants. But then it goes on to say, with groanings that cannot be uttered, and he that searches the hearts, he searches our hearts. He knows the heart of everyone here, every one of us. And he knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit. Have you ever met a power or a force that's got a mind? We have electrical power here. We need it in the evening. We need it right now. Do you think the power that is generating this microphone, do you believe that that has a mind? Only a being has a mind. Because he maketh intercession. He's an intercessor. Look, I could plead with the power in this microphone for the next 100 years, and it would never intercede for me. It's powerful. If you touch it in the wrong place, that power, it takes your life. It takes your life. But my dear brothers and sisters, there are many passages of Scripture, but I want to read some from the spirit of prophecy. I, I know we're all aware of the statement that Sister White made in dear old Australia. I like the statement she made there. It's a tragedy that the people in Australia are not following. We had the blessing of nine years of the servant of the Lord. It was the privilege of my grandmother to listen to Sister White preach. And she never forgot it. My grandmother heard the message in 1899. Remember Sister White was there from 1891 to 1900. And my grandmother heard the message in 1899. She was baptised in 1900. Sister White left Australia in August 1900. But before she left, she came up to the city once where my grandmother had accepted the truth. And my grandmother had the privilege of hearing a message from the servant of the Lord. She lived another 42 years, but she never forgot that message. 
Never did she doubt that she had heard the word of a prophet. And yet the whole concept of the spirit of prophecy was quite new to her at that time. She'd been a Methodist. She knew nothing of the spirit. And only for a few months had she ever even heard anything, even heard the name Seventh-day Adventist. But she heard the prophet. And she heard the word of God. And, uh, you know, we have to remember that the servant of the Lord has been so plain about this matter. And as uh, we mentioned, she was speaking about the Holy Spirit being on the grounds of Avondale College. I wonder what she would say today. I wonder. We need to realize that the Holy Spirit who is as much a person as God is a person, is walking through these grounds. Now you'll find that in the book Evangelism 616. The Holy Spirit. And that's what we were praying for last evening, isn't it, brothers and sisters? That the Holy Spirit would be walking through these grounds. And I pray with all my heart that he is. I won't read statement after statement. I just want to show you how deceived people who believe they're standing for truth are when they accept this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, that he is not a being. Listen to this statement taken from Bible Commentary, Volume 6, page 1075. Now, this is the spirit of prophecy statement. Christ made baptism the entrance to his spiritual kingdom. He made this a positive condition with which all must comply who wish to acknowledge, be acknowledged under the authority of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Does a power have authority? This is placing the Holy Spirit's, the Holy Ghost's authority with that of the Father and the Son. The passage goes on to say, now listen, this is crucial. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost powers infinite and omniscient receive those who truly enter into covenant relationship with God. So the Holy Spirit is omniscient. He has a mind. He's all-powerful. There cannot be any doubt what Sister White is saying here. These are words so clear that no one, not one person can misunderstand them. Councils on health. Page 222. That should be easy to remember. I like references like that. 222. And I want you to listen how important the Holy Spirit is to our salvation. The Godhead, and brothers and sisters, let us use that term. Forget the term Trinity. We have a biblical term, the Godhead. 
The Trinity term carries too much Roman Catholic baggage with it. We don't believe in the Catholic Trinity anyway. It's a pagan trinity. It may have the same names, but they're pagan concepts. So let us call the three beings of heaven as the Godhead. The Godhead was stirred with pity for the race. This is after sin came to this world. Now listen. And the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit gave themselves to the working out of the plan of redemption. Three beings worked out the plan of redemption. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit was just uh, uh, the power of Jesus or the power of God, how could a statement like this, so plain, so unequivocal. You ever sing the hymn? You know, I know you do. I'm sure it's in this hymn. Praise God. Well, I better not start singing or you might all leave. But <laughs> praise God from all, whom all blessings flow. How does it continue? Creatures here below. Keep going. And then praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Did you know Sister White commented on that verse? Let me read it to you. Review and Herald, January 4, 1881. May we all unite to swell the song. Praise God from all, whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Do you think Sister White would have asked us to sing that song, that hymn, if this was theological error? Now I want you to notice the date of that. 1881. And I've got a reason. Because another wind of doctrine which has come flashing into our church is that the spirit of prophecy was so tainted by other writers that it's of no value after the year 1884. Now remember, this was written in 1881. There are numerous people thinking they're standing for the real spirit of prophecy. Look, Sister White said in the last days, there are going to be deceptions of almost every kind in the church. She says, the last deception will be to make of none effect the testimony. Well, the liberals in our church make of none effect by saying it's not accurate, it's of no value in matters of doctrine, and uh, they just despise the spirit of prophecy. And then the Laodiceans in the church say, oh, we believe the spirit of prophecy. Oh, yes, we believe in it. And they have the books, if they're bothered to buy them, on their bookshelf, and all you can find there is that is one place where they can deposit the dust so that you don't have to do so much dusting around the house. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, that is making of none effect. I don't care if anyone here says, oh, I believe in the spirit of prophecy. But if you treat the spirit of prophecy that way, you are fulfilling prophecy. But there's a third group. Brothers and sisters who come to self-supporting meetings who say, we want such a pure 
that we, we don't believe after 1844, after the, uh, the first edition of Great Controversy was uh, published, all the rest have been tampered with. Do you realise if you take her, Sister White's Review and Herald articles in those six volumes, you haven't even finished volume one by the end of 1884. Over five of those volumes are writings that she made after 1844. You would have to, and they do, discard Desire of Ages, Steps to Christ, Education, Ministry of Healing, Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing, Christ Object, some of the most wonderful books of the spirit of prophecy. And you'd certainly throw away the 1911 edition of Great Controversy if you were to believe that. We are told that we have to believe that for 31 years, Sister White went on right, 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 writing, never bothered to look at any of her books to see how they had been tampered with, that the Holy Spirit never once said, hey, 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 wait, wait. Just let her go on so that others could tamper with them. Look, the very men who are accused of tampering with them are the very ones who opposed for most of their lives the, the concept that the Holy Spirit was a person. Would they then tamper with a book and place that doctrine in when they didn't believe it? It was only when the spirit of prophecy concentrated on those areas in the 1890s, study the issue, that most of our Seventh-day Adventist ministers realised that Christ was not a created being, that he was not, and that the Holy Spirit was not just a force. We are going from wind of doctrine to wind of doctrine. I haven't got time to go through many others I mentioned just briefly then concerning the matter of Christ being a being who was created somehow from the substance of the Father eons ago. But what did Sister White write? She said that he had life, original, unborrowed, underived. End of the problem. It is solved in words that cannot be disputed. There are others who go around saying that we should reinterpret the prophecies, the 42 weeks, and call it exactly 42 weeks. We met someone in Spain who had that idea just a few days ago. We showed him clearly that Sister White took the uh, uh, Revelation 13 and the 42 weeks mentioned there, and she said this is the medieval reign of the papacy. You can't have anything clearer than that. No, he said, it's something that's going to happen yet in the future for three and a half years. The spirit, we said, show us. Show us the spirit of prophecy. Show us the Bible. We are becoming futurists. The devil is finding a way to deceive us. And the strange thing is, when new, exciting ideas come to people who are standing for truth, I find that too few of them are saying, hey, wait a moment, before I rush in and accept this, I've got to remember Christ said, be not deceived. Oh, but he sounds so good. Yes, 
He may. 1 Corinthians 3.18 Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you seemeth to be wise in this world, let him become a fool that he may be wise. Let's look at Romans 16 and 8, verse 18. Romans chapter 16 and verse 18. And there we read, For they that are such serve not the Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by good words... And fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. I want to say today it's not just the simple who are being deceived. It's the wise in one sense of the word. Good words. Sounds good. Look, when something new comes... The very first question we should ask without making a rush to judgment is, is this the devil's subtle deception? But the one matter which is concerning me more than anything else today is that those like ourselves, and it concerns my own soul because I'm just as susceptible as anyone else, is that we are not asking ourselves the question. Is this the devil's way to take away the elect? The elect. Those who have stood so much. So he brings new ideas. The idea that the international dateline should have run through Jerusalem. Therefore, every Australian and every Asian is keeping the wrong Sabbath. Despite the fact that the servant of the Lord lived in Australia for nine years and kept the same Sabbath that I am keeping now. But that doesn't matter. The idea that we are blaspheming our Father in heaven if we call him God, use the English word, or any other word, language, except the Hebrew, as if the language of heaven is going to be Hebrew language. <laughs> My dear brothers and sisters, every human language is coarse and crude in comparison with the language which we will all understand in heaven. I had a woman weep before me in the United States about three years ago. She said, the greatest doctrine you need to understand is never use the word God. But I said, I read the spirit of prophecy. She wrote in English, what word did she use? I know that the word theos, not Yahweh, is used by the New Testament writers, the Greek word, for God. But somehow, these evidences are unimportant. The wind of doctrine, instead of following a steady, steady course, I find others that go into medical ideas, health ideas. They're not found in the spirit of prophecy. Their new age. Or there's some other concept. But our people are following these because 
They say, oh, but I think this sounds like spirit of prophecy, health, counsels. And sometimes to the great damage of the human body. These are being followed. Others who want to prove that Christ was crucified on Wednesday. That's quite an issue. Look, you just need to go to Luke chapter 21, not chapter 24. And there you will find that when he was speaking to the men on the road to Emmaus, they explained to him, this is the third day. We know that was the first day of the week. No one can dispute that. There's no way that from Wednesday to Sunday could be called the third day since all these things happened. No way at all. And what about the, the feasts? The three feasts, which symbolize what happened. The feast of the Passover, Christ's death. The feast of the first day of unleavened bread, which symbolized his rest in the tomb. That was a holy Sabbath day, a ceremonial Sabbath. Passover was not, because it could not be. Christ could not have been put to death on a Sabbath day. That was against the Jewish law. And then the next day is the Feast of um, First Fruits, Christ's resurrection. Three days successively, only two nights between. The type fulfilled, it was fulfilled in the anti-type specifically. Yet people are losing their salvation over all these winds of doctrine. Brothers and sisters, I dare not test your time any longer. But I am earnest. Be not deceived. Any new idea that comes, test it. And then retest it. And test it by the only infallible guide. The law and the testimony. I was speaking to a brother in Lisbon two days ago. That text has been deleted from the new Portuguese Bible. It's been changed. It's no longer to the law and the testimony. Tragic. That is the only sure test. But I hear people saying, oh, I brought people into the truth on this matter. That's not the law and the testimony. Or... Uh, the minister or the person who presented you you better listen to him he's so sincere I guarantee he's not as apparently sincere as what the devil's going to sound when he comes like Christ if we're going to use criteria such as that we are going to be part of that group that become those who worship the beast because we will believe that which is deception, and we will not go back to the law and to the testimony. Don't bring those other criteria. It is wonderful when people believe the truth of God and come into the truth. But my dear brothers and sisters, that is not pure evidence that what they heard was true. I conclude with a little experience I had in Queensland, about in April, where a couple were brought into the truth by a minister who didn't teach them the truth. 
three years ago. And, uh, but they thought it was the truth. They continued as meat eaters. They continued uh, as uh, going to the cinema. They continued with all the worldly ventures. Of course, they went to church on Sabbath uh, and so forth. But they continued with a life of worldliness because they said that's how all the other members were conducting themselves in the church and that's how the minister had not given them the true seven. They didn't know about the sanctuary. They didn't know about overcoming sin. But then they shifted to another part of Queensland and they met faithful people who brought the truth to them. You know, there are these abominations in God's church, but it is still the one object of Christ's supreme regard because God has the commandments of the law and he has the everlasting gospel, the three angels' messages. You see, those people came in under a false Seventh-day Adventism. But God in his love showed that if you start digging, 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 there's a lot of rubbish on top. But if you start digging and digging that rubbish away, the truth is still there in the Seventh-day Adventist church. Now, there are a lot of good people in the Methodist, the Presbyterian, the Anglican, the Baptist churches. But you can dig until you go right through the, from one end of the earth to the other. And you will not find the truth in those churches. This is God's church, weak and defective. But I want to say, my dear brothers and sisters, Christ is pleading with us over and over again, be not deceived. It is time for each one of us to study, to show ourselves approved. And remember, there's only one criterion of truth which will save us from being part of all the world that worships the beast. And that is the law and the testament. Amen. God bless you all, is my prayer. Just kneel as we pronounce this benediction. Father in heaven, we are those who need thy spirit. We need it because we are weak. Because, as we have been described, we are simple. But Lord, we need the wisdom of God. Please guide our thoughts heavenward that we may be not deceived but that we may follow the old path wherein dwelleth righteousness. Oh, God bless us. God care for us. And when thou dost make up thine elect, please may every dear soul here be in that gathering for Jesus' holy name. Amen.